Thank you for joining Bonafide Ministry. This is Stephen Hunter. You may already know this. Uh, it was something that I recently discovered. Little Red Riding Hood was originally about the werewolf fornicating with the girl who herself was equated with a prostitute and killing her after first seducing her. Now, that's not the version I grew up with, but the original story was written in the 16th century during Europe's werewolf epidemic. Men who were committing horrific murders were said to have been werewolves since it would have taken such a beast to achieve such horrible things. <clears throat> this was actually a legal charge of which some people were convicted in those days. Sleeping Beauty is another example. From the 17th century was originally about a woman being assaulted in her sleep by a sex-starved king. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was initially about child labor in coal mines. Snow White was based on a beautiful woman whose father employed children in the mines since they were so small that only children could work in them. Disney went along and sanitized these stories to make them more child-friendly. Now, don't even get me started on Pocahontas. But think about this. Sunday schools throughout the world have done the same thing with the story of Noah and the Ark. We've caricatured this story by focusing only on Noah, the Ark, and the animals going two by two. But when you think about it, the story of Noah and the Ark is actually a very sad story when read through ancient lenses. So <clears throat> what's the best way to read the flood story? We have to understand first how ancient people told stories. We tend to read all these things as literal history with our Western minds, but ancient Easterners told stories using hyperbole, like some of the fishing stories our dads and uncles tell us, right, about how big the fish was. Well, the flood was a historical event, but all the details surrounding the event may have been hyperbole. If you were to take a comparison, say, of, let's look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, verses 5 through 7. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I'll destroy whom I have created, excuse me, I'll destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And in verse nine, uh, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now, if we read this as literal, these passages are somewhat in contradiction of one another. Was not Noah a man? And would he not have been as guilty as the others? But the point is that amid such depravity on the earth, one man from whom the Israelites descended found grace in the eyes of God. So we see in Genesis a narrowing of Israel's lineage. So what's important to remember when reading Genesis is that this is Israel's national history. So that's necessarily going to be where the focus is. So in the narrowing of this lineage, we've gone from Adam and Eve to Seth, and through Seth to Noah, and from Noah, Shem, from whom the Semitic people descend. 
So as the story goes on and on, the focus becomes narrower and narrower until we arrive at Jacob and his descendants. Now, the genealogy of Genesis 5 followed Seth and his son Enosh at the point when they began to call on the name of Yahweh. So if you will look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, it says, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore him a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Or in the Hebrew, it says, the men, men began to call on the name of Yahweh, which was another way to say that they were worshiping God. Now, Noah's story derives from there, and that probably explains why he was a righteous man in a corrupt time, which is going to lead us closer to Israel and the promised land. So again, I remind you that Genesis is Israel's national story, its beginning, and it focuses on land and people, the land being that of Canaan and the people being Israel. So now when we get to the actual flood, uh, there's something that should be noted. You've probably heard this, maybe you haven't, but Genesis is not the only ancient civilization with a flood story. The oldest of flood stories is contained in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is dated between 2150 to 1400 BC. Other Mesopotamian civilizations had flood stories as well, and the Greeks and the Aztecs did too. Some archaeologists estimate that there was a catastrophic flood in the ancient Near East around 2900 BC. Uh, the telling of the story here should emphasize why more so than how. So we should focus on why God did what he did rather than recreate a historical event with the details we have supplied. Sorry, Ken Ham. I know that's not what he does. But the point is human corruption precipitated the flood. And we can conclude that murder and the eating of live animals were a part of that issue based on the prohibitions in Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. But there's also the intro to this where divine figures called the sons of God are leaving their estate. If you look in Genesis chapter uh, 6, verse 4, there were giants or Nephilim. On the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men they bore them children those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown now the way this reads in Hebrew it reads almost like a mythology in a sense because uh, the Nephilim and the sons of God are divine figures and what are they doing they're consorting with humans now there are other passages as a matter of fact in our New Testament go along with this. For example, Jude chapter 1 verse 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Second Peter, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter 2 verse 4 and 5, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness 
to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And there's also Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So from Genesis chapter 6, there's this intro to divine figures, and they're doing something that divine figures were not created to do, and that is consort with women. And the commingling of the earthly and divine is antithetical to God's design, which makes it sinful to do. Now, <clears throat> this precipitates what follows. God, however, is not concerned with just being mean to humans. But out of all those who are on the face of the earth, there are none that are good like Noah. So God is going to hit the reset button on creation. The flood will ultimately result in wiping off those humans who've placed themselves against God and his design. The one who honors him will survive and go on to perpetuate people who, hopefully, like himself, will continue in a good way. So when we think of the flood, it isn't destruction so much as recreation. And this is exactly how Peter describes it centuries later in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Here's what that says. For this they willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. So there are some striking similarities between the flood and recreation and creation in Genesis 1. For example, on the first day of creation, an empty void exists as a water mass in Genesis 1 verse 2. So God divides the waters above and below, and he partitioned the waters above with the firmament in Genesis 1 6, or a dome. We next read about this dome having windows in Genesis 7 11. So the flood doors were opened, and even the waters elevated from the deep below. Whereas God had divided creation, He's now undoing in the flood what he had done. Where chaos had existed and God ordered it, he removes his order for the disorder to reign on the inhabited earth. If God's creation behaves in a disorderly and chaotic way, God will unleash the forces of chaos upon it. However, for Noah and his family, God provides salvation. So, after the flood is over, Noah is recorded as building the first ever altar in Genesis 8 verse 20. The animals on the ark are for offering to God. Now remember Cain and Abel and offerings. Noah is now the new creation, the new Adam, who teaches worship via an altar. Then we witness another first. God makes the first covenant in Genesis 9 verses 9 through 11. Rather than humanity living in constant fear of God's judgment, God promises society to never allow chaos to have control, and the sign of this is the bow that he puts in the sky. As God makes later covenants, we see him give indications of the covenant. To Abraham, he gave the sign of circumcision. To Moses, he gave the Sabbath. To we who are Christians, he has given the Lord's Supper. 
these signs are like brands. They serve as a reminder to the covenant partners of the relationship established between them. So when we read Genesis and when we read about the flood, what we're reading about is recreation. 